Okay. We have one announcement. That is, early voting started yesterday. And just to encourage you that when you go, make a little time because there's around 85 different races. What? 99 Say that again. 123. Okay, I stand corrected. That means that you have to take a little more time. And there's, I think, 65 judicial races that you need to make a decision on. So uh, it's going to take time. Take some water. Take a water, take a snack, take a stool. What? Okay, so try to get a ballot. Okay, that's the main thing. What? Texasvotes.com. Okay. I guess that's the, that's the only announcement. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, ready to focus and study his word, that we might uh, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can uh, confess sin if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together in freedom to study your word, to freely proclaim the truth of the gospel and the absolute truth of your word without any government interference. And, Father, with this election coming up, we know that significant things hang in the balance. And, Father, we pray that you might expose those who are seeking to undermine the election, those that may have uh, nefarious... uh, plots in in their in mind and we just pray that you would oversee that expose those who would seek to do evil and we pray that you would protect and secure the election but above all we know that whatever transpires however it turns out that you are in control and that you are working out your plan and purposes for history so father we pray that we might be completely relaxed not caught up in all of the fervor that's going on And no matter which way it goes, that we may relax in your sovereign providential control. Father, we pray for Jim and Phyllis Myers as they are traveling in Zambia now, speaking in quite a few different churches. And we pray for their health, for their rest, for their uh, ability to relax, and that you would keep them uh, healthy. 
And, uh, Father, we just also remember to pray for those in Ukraine and the good report that we had on many of the people that are associated with the church and with the school and with um, uh, uh, continuing to uh, have various ministries that they have generated for themselves and getting the gospel to those around them. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that as we reflect upon these uh, events, what Scripture teaches, that we might come to understand how they, uh, what they uh, mean for our own way of life and thinking, and how we can take these these ideas and implement them in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. All right. Well, if you have been paying attention over the last several weeks, really, because we've sort of had some interruptions with. Uh, my travels, and some other things. But back in Lesson 72, we went over uh, Judges chapter 11, or excuse me, 10, 10 through 18. Then I backtracked. I backtracked to verse 6 for a specific reason. And that reason is that I wanted to cover the fact that at the core of these religions that are mentioned in uh, chapter 10, verse 6, the uh, summarized in the phrase the Baalim or the Baals and the Ashtoreth, that, that these gods and goddesses of the surrounding nations all have one thing in common, and that is that they all deny the creator-creature distinction. And that that, and so I, just wanted to stop and talk about that because aside from the Judeo-Christian worldview, this denial of the creator-creature distinction permeates every religion and every philosophical system that is not grounded on the creator-creature distinction on the Word of God. It's just fundamental. And so last time we went through the various philosophical systems, and I sort of reinforced whatever understanding you had of ancient Greek philosophy and ancient history and medieval philosophy, and I hope that we exposed or at least uh, filled in a few gaps that may have been created by whatever deficits you had in your education. The really sad thing is, is when I go back and realize what high school level students were doing a hundred years ago, a hundred to 150 years ago, they had an education. And, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, bemoaning that, but the level of education that a young man acquires in the first 20 years of his life will then lay the groundwork for his ability to handle the Word of God and be a, be a good pastor when he is older. And we've lost that because we now generate a low level. We have a low standard in public education, and they're no longer required or even offer Latin in a lot of schools. And, and the fact the requirement of Greek went away a hundred years ago. And so this, this is really sad. It, it diminishes the, the intellectual capacity of everyone, but it also diminishes the capacity of, of Bible students and Bible scholars. 
when I think about the fact that the average uh, divinity school student 150 years ago had more facility in Greek and some in Hebrew than I had when I finished a Master's of Theology at Dallas Seminary, it gives you some idea of what's been lost. And we forget that just because we have a lot of uh, technological advances doesn't mean that we can think any more clearly. And unfortunately, we don't think more clearly at all. So it's important for us to, as pastors, I think, uh, I know when I was a teenager, I learned more about history, needed to learn more about history, and that that always attracted me than than what was taught in in high school, or even when I was in in college or or university. And I think that today, with the absence of absolutes and the distortion of the way that history and English literature and other others important liberal arts subjects are taught in a public school today in many many places not every place and not always every place in a in a bad school district but but because those things are missing they they need to be taught from the pulpit because you can't teach the bible and certain principles in the bible if people don't know anything about history or or their ideas of history are completely distorted. So it's going to fall back on the church as it was for centuries that it was the responsibility of the church to educate people. And that's why you have, you develop church schools and eventually cathedral schools and you had some of the greatest cathedral schools morphed into uh, universities, Oxford, Cambridge, University of Paris, Bologna, Bologna, and many of these uh, places started as as cathedral schools, and that is because with a firm understanding of the need to know the Bible and the fact that the Bible addresses er- in some way every area of intellection, that we have to somehow make make up for that, and so pastors have to take time to. Uh, do a little remedial education, and it, it's true even in seminary classes that you the, that's one of the things that's been a topic among seminary professors for the last thirty or forty years is how do we handle the fact that we have students coming into classes they're going to take Greek and Hebrew, but they to understand Greek grammar or Hebrew grammar, you have to understand grammar terms, and they don't even come out of high school with an understanding of grammar grammar terms. So you, what do you do to 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 do this? And all of this, I think, the destruction of education is is part of Satan's strategy. So we have to take time to do those things, and I hope that that was able to bring a few things together for you. Because the main point is to recognize that this idea of of this chain of being or continuity of being, as it is in its present form, really in the um, in the Darwinian. Uh, scale uh, isn't anything new, and it goes back um, uh, to uh, very ancient mythological forms in the in the ancient world. And so, what we see in the ancient world, which is what we're studying in Judges, is the fact that these this this kind of pagan worldview that denied the creator creature distinction 
was dominant in the thinking in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, Greece and Rome and Britain and Scandinavia. And when you get, you know, into a little more modern era, uh, it's true of all of the uh, Indians in South America, Central America, North America. I mean, it's true in India, Asian religions all boiled down to uh, this creator-creature distinction. And even in the mid Middle Ages, in the what we call the medieval period, the early medieval period, and early Christian period from the second or third century on, the big battle was against the mysticism of Neoplatonism. And then uh, Aristotle gets rediscovered, and that becomes a problem. And it's not really until you get to the uh, early 16th century with the birth of the Protestant Reformation that there is a self-conscious effort by Christians to get back to sola scriptura, the Bible alone. And even then, it took another hundred years to really deal with the important issues of hermeneutics, of what are the principles of interpretation and working those things out. And so as we live in cultures that are dominated by human viewpoint or pagan thinking, that that this is always a, a, a problem. So when we come to passages such as we have in Judges chapter 11 and 12, uh, it's an important backdrop for us to understand that those who uh, grew up in Israel during this time were more influenced by the paganism of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Ammonites and those surrounding cultures uh, than they were uh, with the the Torah. And and that's why when we get there towards the end of the book and we have these, these two episodes described, the horrific episode of the uh, Levite and his uh, concubine who is um, attacked and gang-raped by the citizens of Gibeon, that, that this is just a typical thing to show, and that, that at the backdrop of all of this is this Levite who is setting up his own worship service, and it turns out he's Moses' grandson, so we see how the the priesthood has become so apostate and paganized and then on into into talking about the people. So when we come to a situation like Judges 11, where we're dealing with Jephthah and where we'll get to eventually in Judges 11 is this vow that he makes. And it has been, I think, uh, horribly misunderstood by a lot of evangelicals because they want to interpret these heroes in light of what is said about them in Hebrews 11 and not in light of the argument of of, uh, of the book of Judges. So we have to understand that these men are as much wrongly influenced by their the culture around them and what that means as Many Christians are today in our culture. The level of biblical ignorance among about probably 95% of uh, professing Christians in this country is embarrassing. 
it's almost off the scales. And many people believe in a sort of pop Christianity. And I remember when I pastored in my first church, which was sort of an interdenominational, in the old classic decent sense of that word, interdenominational type of church. It was called the Union Church. And that was a 19th century term for when you first went in and you established the first church in a community that you didn't have enough Methopresbyterians to have their own church that you got, everybody got together and they would bring in preachers. And that was before there was the modernist liberalism, modernist, uh, excuse me, modernist fundamentalist controversy. So, uh, you still had people that mostly believed in the Bible as the Word of God. As you get further and further into the 20th century, you lost that. But um, they would have some who, of course, believed in infant baptism, some who believed in uh, believer's baptism only, for example. And so if, you had, if they had a pastor that was a Baptist, he was required that you get you know, find a Methodist to come in and do the infant baptism. If you had a Methodist itinerant that was there for a while, then he'd be required to find a Baptist uh, minister somewhere to do the baptism. So that was the background for that church. And um, and I found found that um, that there was they 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 had a a decent pastor. I knew him because he had retired and stayed in the church and and um, and he he taught the word, but he didn't. He taught accurately, but he didn't taught deep, teach deeply. And you had people who had come in over the years, and they didn't, they they didn't know Jonah from Jonadab. You know, they they just had a pop view where you would think they would think that, oh yeah, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's one of the proverbs. Of course, that's not in scripture, but that's pop religion. And the reason I say that is this is the kind of culture that Jephthah grows up in. And so we have to understand that this is a man who is uh, uh, pretty ignorant and illiterate as far as the Mosaic law goes because of, of his background. So we're going to get into that tonight. And so that is why I've entitled uh, what we're going to cover tonight as Jephthah's character, understanding who this guy is, and the key to that is what I've gone through the last few weeks is trying to understand what these pagan cultures uh, are all about. And in the ancient Near East, part of the worldview in these religions often included placating the gods or manipulating the gods through human sacrifices. And that plays a background in the thinking and the cultural baggage of Jephthah and the people at that particular time. So in the worship of Moloch or in the worship of Baal, the worship of Chemosh or Dagon, you had human sacrifices. In Deuteronomy 12.31.18.10, you have two clear references that prior to the conquest God is, through Moses, is telling the people not to get caught up in human sacrifice. Now, the reason I make that point is the traditional evangelical view of what happens in terms of uh, Jephthah and his vow is that 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 human sacrifice didn't occur till later on in the divided kingdom. 
But in Deuteronomy 12.31, Moses says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they, that is the Canaanites, have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire of their gods. Live human sacrifices, live infant sacrifices, this was normative among the Canaanites uh, before the Israelites conquered the promised land. Deuteronomy 18.10, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. And ultimately, the reason for that is that behind this, uh, these idols were demons. Demons are behind every false religion and behind every idolatrous system. Deuteronomy 32.17 says, They sacrifice to demons, not to God. God's, lowercase, Elohim is the word there. Elohim they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. So in that passage, it is connecting demons uh, to uh, idols and to these gods and goddesses in the Canaanite pantheon and the various other uh, pantheons of the ancient world. So this is something that is important for us to understand. It's part of their, um, their cultural baggage. And so we come to... Uh, passages like uh, Deuteronomy uh, 10.6, which we've, uh, or excuse me, Judges 10.6 that we looked at last time. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the indictment of uh, Israel's idolatrous uh, paganization in violation of the Torah. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And then in verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. That's the strongest statement made yet about how God uh, disciplined them. But these verses remind us of what has been said earlier in Judges 3, 7. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. That refers to the first cycle, the oppression of Cushan Rishathaim back in Judges 3, um, 3, 1 through 7 uh, for eight uh, or three, excuse me, three, seven and following. For eight years, they're oppressed by Kushan Rishathaim, and the first deliverer, Othniel, uh, delivers them. And Othniel is the, not only the first judge, but he's the first judge that is, has the spirit of the Lord come upon him. There are only four judges that have the spirit of the Lord come on them. The first one who is Othniel, and then Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And I've always found that somewhat ironic because Gideon, as we studied, leads the people back into idolatry. He has a military victory over the Midianites, but he is a spiritual failure. Not only does he lead the people back into idolatry with the worship of an ephod, which would have been put on an idol, uh, 
but he his his son his son by a concubine Abimelech uh, causes uh, a tremendous havoc in the hill country of Samaria as well. Jephthah is worse than Gideon, and Samson is worse than Jephthah. But each of these men are said to have uh, been clothed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that it's an interesting idiom, and I've gone over this before, that it, the role of the Holy Spirit was to enable the leadership to function, to fulfill their leadership, and to give them wisdom or skill in the area of their leadership. It wasn't for their spiritual life. It didn't take them closer to God. It wasn't for any of the reasons that we have in the church age. The church age role of the Holy Spirit is unique and distinct, and no one in the Old Testament had a relationship with the Holy Spirit that was anything close to that. So in each of these instances, Judges 3.12, the sons of Israel did again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil. Twice it repeats that they had done evil. And as I've said, most of the time when they make this statement about evil, it's related to idolatry. Judges 4.1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And then we have um, Judges 6, 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And then when we get to Samson, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is the drumbeat. So as we go through this uh, remainder of chapter 10, and I covered part of it already, uh, we're get, we have reviewed the indictment uh, of Israel's idolatrous paganization in violation of the Torah. There's an absolute standard, and that is the Torah, the law of Moses. Torah is a word that is translated in many places law, and it means that, but it also means instruction because the law was designed to also instruct people in their walk with the Lord. Uh, the second uh, thing we're going to see in verses seven to nine is how the justice of God in fulfillment is in fulfillment of His uh, promises of judgment. Uh, the five cycles of discipline, Leviticus twenty-six, and summarized also in Deuteronomy twenty-eight. That's covered in and fulfilled in Judges ten seven to nine, and then Israel's not so sincere confession in Judges ten ten. And God's rejection of their confession in John 10, 11 to 14. And then Israel's continued plea and turning to God in Judges 10, 15 to 17. And then Israel's discipline arrives. What's interesting there is God still doesn't accept their, uh, their confession, uh, because it's not Real. It's just doing, they're just going through the motions. But anyway, so what we've seen here is this decline from Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon. We're at Jephthah, and the next major one is Samson. So the area we're talking about is this area over here on the right, where the big circle is. This whole area here is called the Transjordan. And this is the area of Gilead, G-I-L-E-A-D, who was one of the 
the, the leaders in the conquest generation, so their descendants of that. So Gilead was another name that was applied to this region, and you see it uh, vertically here in the middle, uh, was another name for this area. And Ramoth of Gilead, because there were other towns called Ramoth, so Ramoth Gilead would be the Ramoth in Gilead, just like you might have uh, a Paris, Texas, and a Paris, Tennessee, or Paris, France. Uh, you have the same name for the city, but it has to be qualified by its state or national uh, uh, location. So this is the area that we're talking about in the Transjordan. And when we get to it, when when uh, Jephthah leaves, he go he doesn't go across the Jordan back into Israel. He goes further, uh, further east. So we have this indictment of Israel's idolatrous paganization in violation of the Torah in Judges 10:6, which we've spent a lot of time on. They abandoned the Lord and they did not serve Him. This isn't just a free choice that I'm going to have another religious belief. Because of the Mosaic law, the constitution of Israel, it's high treason for them to abandon the Lord. So God has outlined in the Mosaic law exactly what the consequences will be for the nation. And so uh, the justice of God then is going to come down hard on them. Uh, based on Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that means that there's going to it's going to culminate in a military invasion, and perhaps the and that's the fourth, third, and fourth divine institutions. I mean, excuse me, the third and fourth cycles of discipline, and then uh, the fifth cycle of discipline is where they're removed from the land. So in the time of the judges, there's no fifth cycle of discipline, just the third cycle and the fourth cycle. And so we have the phrase in verse 7 of the anger of the Lord, uh, which I went through uh, a, while, a while back. It's a figure of speech. It does not literally mean that God is angry. It is called an anthropopathism, but it also deals with this issue uh, of whether or not God has emotion. And I'm going to deal with that a little bit more in Ephesians, but I covered it in detail that this phrase, the anger of the Lord, as you see here, the verb means something to burn, literally, but it has a figurative meaning to be angry. And then it, 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 the phrase is, the nose burns, off is nose, yahar is burned, so the nose burns, so it's a literal nose, but figuratively it has its anger. So it's it's a fig the whole thing is a is an idiom it's a figure of speech god does not have a literal nose so it's using a a form of, of human form to communicate something but the the nose isn't literal the anger isn't literal either because uh the pa- the the passion of anger uh, is something that is responding to a situation. And since God has always in his omniscience known everything there is to know, then there's nothing for him to respond to that, that is new. There's no change in God. And in my reading and studying of, um, of this whole topic, it's interesting that this, the, the view that I, that I take has the dominant well, it's the only view until the 19th century. Uh, 
And it really isn't until you get into the 20th century with the influence of Freudianism in a culture that makes emo- brings emotion and a person's individual emotions to the forefront that you start having people say, well, you know, God really does have emotions. And what that means is God must be open to us. Well, if God's open to us, then he's open to change. And ultimately, this leads to a position called open theism, which is the idea that that God really doesn't know for sure everything is going to happen in the future. And even the Evangelical Theological Society had to admit that that wasn't biblical about 20 years ago, but then they didn't force anyone who believed it to leave. So it was kind of a tempest in a teapot that didn't matter ultimately for them. So then we see the next two verses also deal with this justice, uh, God's wrath, God's anger. It's the application of his justice, just as we say in court that somebody uh, has a severe penalty assigned to them, say the judge threw the book at them. Well, we don't mean the judge actually picked up the law book and threw it at them. It's just a figure of speech to say that they were um, guilty and they received a full penalty to the greatest extent allowed by law. So that's the idea here. And God then sells them into the hands of the Philistines. This is the same verb that's used for slavery, and it's a very strong verb. And that's the strongest verb used since we read the summary back in chapter 2. And they were afflicted and crushed, these two different words uh, that I have at the bottom. And they, there's alliteration there in the Hebrew, ra'atz and ratzatz. And it's a very strong visual image of, of how oppressed they were. They're afflicted, they're shattered, and they're crushed by their enemies. Uh, and they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. So in the end, it says you have in verse seven two things that he's going to be. They're sold into the hands of the Philistines and the hands of the Ammonites. Now the Philistines are mentioned first, Ammonites are mentioned second, but it's the Ammonites that are then dealt with first, and that's in Judges eleven and and twelve, and then in Judges thirteen is when you we're going to deal with the Philistines and and Samson. So this is the punishment. For 18 years, the Philistines and the Ammonites afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites. So this is really functioning on the Ammonites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Uh, This is basically... Ephraim is Samaria. This is the northern area. It's the area, the hill country of Samaria and on the, over to the uh, east side of the Jordan. So now in this map in the lower corner, I've circled that where the Amorites main territory was located, which is to the northeast of Israel. And then the Ammonites basically controlled the area of what is today uh, modern Jordan which is a shortened form of its original name, which was the Transjordan. And uh, the name Ammon is uh, is in the capital city of Jordan, which is Amman. So that is that's the area here that we're that we're talking about. So 
Um, this is how God is going to discipline them first with the the Ammonites and um, and then the Philistines. So we get to a timeline, which somehow this got corrupted in terms of the. So I'll just put the whole thing up here. Here's the timeline. Approximately 1124 B.C. is when the Ammonite oppression began, and that will go to about 1106. Now, up above, I have the lifespans of these three judges, Jephthah, Samson, and then Samuel. Their lives overlapped, and their ministries are really in different parts of Israel. So Jephthah lives from approximately 1150 to 1100. Samson is from 1123 uh, to 1084, and then... um, Samuel is from 1115 to 1020. So the Ammonite oppression begins first, and it overlaps with the Philistine oppression. The Ammonites are coming in from the east, and the Philistines are coming in from the south southwest. 1050 is the approximate time of the beginning of Saul's reign. So these are the uh, basic uh, timelines and bit- benchmarks that we have in, in, in this timeline. Now, the third thing that we see in chapter 10 is Israel's not-so-sincere confession. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of anybody who ever really practiced pre-bound. You know, you confess your sin ahead of time. Lord, I'm going to go ahead and do this, but I'll just confess it now. That's something that indicates spiritual immaturity. Or you know you're, you're going to do it again, whatever it is, and you confess it, but you really don't mean it. And I remember having discussions as a kid and as an adult with people, well, are you really back in fellowship? Yeah, but it's just for a nanosecond, if at all. Okay, the, the issue is not, am I in fellowship or out of fellowship? The issue is, am I abiding in Christ? In other words, staying in fellowship. It's not about getting in and out. That's that's like the spiritual life takes place inside of a house, let's say. As long as you're in the house, there is spiritual growth and spiritual prosperity. But when you sit when you sin, you are kicked out the front door. And a lot of people just put a revolving door there thinking that it's all about getting back in fellowship and they just spin around in and in, and they never get in the house and stay in the house where there's great food and there's prosperity and uh, spiritual growth. So the idea isn't to get in fellowship. The idea is to stay in fellowship. So Israel's not real sincere about this confession, and they can't pull the wool over omniscient God's eyes. The children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. What's interesting is this word for sin means to miss the mark. It's the primary word that is used for just the general category of, of sin. Other words have the concept of transgression or rebellion or things of that nature. This is just the, the general word that has to do with uh, missing the mark. They've fallen short of God's essence. And they admit, we've sinned against you because we have both forsaken or abandoned our God, notice they don't say Yahweh, they say Elohim, and served the Baals or enslaved ourselves to the Baals. So that's, that's the extent of their, uh, of their confession. 
And then God rejects that confession in verses 11 to 14. He is not at all impressed with their confession. He doesn't take it seriously. And his response is somewhat similar to the indictment by the angel of the Lord of Israel back at, at Bochim, the place of weeping, back in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 4. When they are indicted by the angel of the Lord in chapter 2, 1 through 4, the people weep with remorse. They're not really sorry they did what they did. They're not going to change, but they're sorry they don't want to go through the pain of the consequences. I know nobody here is like that or experienced that, maybe with your kids. Um, and you also have this same kind of indictment with the prophet in Judges 6, 8 through 10. Remember in the setup to the Gideon narrative, uh, the Israelites have done evil again in the sight of the Lord, and so God sends this prophet to I, to uh, indict them, and then he sends the Midianites to judge them. So in Judges 6, 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of, band, of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That is a the legal indictment against them because they violated uh, the Mosaic law. And we see the same thing here in these verses. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Now he's basically giving a historical account of the many times that God has delivered Israel. He starts with uh, e Egypt, and he delivered them from the Egyptian bondage, a story we know quite well, uh, bringing them through the Dead Sea and taking them down to Mount Sinai and giving them the law. Then the next he mentions the Amorites, and you may scratch your head and say, well, where did we see those? Well, the Amorites uh, were at the time of Moses. You have Sihon, of Heshbon, which is in the Transjordan area now. It's the same area as Gilead. They defeated him. And Og of Bashan, and Arbashan. And that is the area today known as the Golan Heights. And so they were defeated by the uh, Israelites at the time of the conquest. So they're delivered from the Amorites in Numbers 21, 21 to 35 and then from the people of Ammon. And the Ammonites were allies of uh, Ehud and, I mean, excuse me, of Eglon, the Moabite. Remember when uh, Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse? You've got Eglon is the king of Moab, and Moab is allied with the Ammonites in Judges 3:15 to 30. And so God delivers them from the 
uh, Ammonites and from the Philistines. And remember Shamgar, there's that one verse on Shamgar who slays him with an ox goad in, in chapter 3, verse 31. Then in verse 12, you have the Sidonians and the Amalekites. And the Sidonians, uh, Sidon was in the area of Phoenicia, and that was all part of the Canaanite people. They were Phoenicians. They were in, in, uh, further up into Syria. They covered the northern part of Israel as well as all the way down. Because the Canaanites weren't a single group. They were just sort of a, a, a melting pot of all of these different individuals. And so the Canaanites under... Um, uh, let me see. I forgot the, forgot his name, but the the king north of at Hatzor, uh, he came down, and that's when you have the battle with Deborah and Barak in chapter four, and uh, the the Amalekites were also uh, the last group mentioned. They were uh, in allies of Moab in three thirteen, and their allies with the Midianites in chapter six. Now, Ma'on is, uh, that's obscure, but there, there was a group that was called the Maonites, and they lived in the area of Midian down in uh, the northern part of what is now Saudi Arabia. So they were associated in part of the Midianite group, which was the problem that uh, Gideon faced. So God is just walking him through. Look what I've done for you. I delivered you here. I delivered you here. I delivered you here, here, and here. And every time you express gratitude and you just went back, like Peter says, you were like a dog returning to its vomit. You just kept going back to these fertility religions instead of uh, walking in obedience to me according to the Mosaic law. In verse 13, God reaches his conclusion. I've done all these things, yet you have forsaken me, and you've served other gods or enslaved yourselves. I prefer that that translation. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. I'm done with you. I'm not going to deliver you anymore. Now, that's that's an interesting thing because we say, well, God's just fed up with him. Well, yeah, God's fed up with him, but God is saying, I'm not going to deal with you in grace anymore. I've dealt with you in grace. I'm just going to do what I promised to do in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. See, they had not been getting what they deserved. God graciously intervened many times, even though they did not turn back to God. They just cried out in pain. And so God is saying, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. No more grace. And go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. You know, go to Baal, go to the asteroid. You cry out to them, see if they can deliver you. And, of course, they can't. So God rejects their confession in Judges 10, 11 to 14. And then Israel continues to whine, oh, to plead with God, uh, to plead with God and turn, uh, turn to God more than they did, but it's still superficial. Judges 10, 15 to 18. So in verse 15, the children of the Lord now say, say to the Lord, the children of Israel now say to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. Very interesting terminology there. 
when they say do whatever seems best to you, they're saying do whatever seems good to you. Now, God knows what he needs to do to discipline them, and so God is has going to do that, but he has relaxed his hand several times when they did not deserve that grace, and so... Um, he, now he is saying he's not going to deliver them anymore. And they're going to, it seems they're sincere. It seems that they are, they really mean it this time because they seem to have a, an appropriate response here. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Now, there's a couple of views on this. The traditional view is that they were, they were, uh, they were sincere, and um, and then God feels sorry for them at the end. The debate over this is that it there's there's some things that are missing here. There is no mention of them turning back to God. There is no sense of their repentance. Those words are not used. They're conspicuously absent from the text. There's no promise uh, that God's going to deliver them. And he is, remember, he says back in verse 13, I won't deliver you anymore. Well, he doesn't negate that. There's no statement from God saying, okay, I'm going to go ahead and deliver you. Uh, we also have to ask the question is after verse 16, uh, why is God silent? He does not respond to this at all. And then what I think is one of the most significant observations is that God, or there's no statement that God raises up Jephthah. So somebody may say, well, if God didn't raise him up, well, wait a minute, but God sends the Holy Spirit upon him. So the fact that God didn't raise him up doesn't mean he was illegitimate. It's just uh, uh, it's it's making the statement that that there's something going on here. They're, they're having the, he's letting them have their way and try to deliver themselves, and it's going to go well partially and partially not. It, it's never a, a pure thing. So Jephthah is never described as having been raised up or strengthened by Yahweh in this passage in the chapter. And why, the question then also remains, why is God totally missing in the account of the rise of Jephthah to leadership in Israel? Okay, so those are some of the background issues that, that have to be paid attention to. They are glaring and conspicuous because of their absence and statements like that are present in the other accounts. So in 10.16 we read, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And then in the last line we have this phrase, And his soul, referring to God's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Now that word that is translated uh, misery... This is a, this is an idiom, and it has the idea of his soul was short. You ever been short-tempered? That's the idea. 
His soul was short. And again, it's another anthropopathism. His soul was short because of the efforts of Israel, the struggle of Israel. Okay, that, that word translated as misery is a word for toil, uh, for the misery that comes with labor and work. So the idea here is that God is no longer long-suffering with Israel, and he's expressing the fact that he is going to let them uh, reap the consequences for their sin. Remember, in divine discipline, God has three responses. The first response is God in his grace is not going to discipline you for the sin. That happens a lot for every one of us. God does n- neither disciplines us nor do we reap the consequences that would go with that sin. And that's God in his grace just negates that. Second way God handles it is we reap the consequences of our bad decisions. The third way is God piles on on top of the natural consequences of the sin. Okay? That happened with David. So David sins with Bathsheba, and their natural consequences, she's going to get pregnant, everybody's going to know that it was David, and all of the things that would come along with that. But then God goes on to say that there's going to be a fourfold uh, discipline that, that on top of that, uh, that's going to affect your family and affect your children. So this is that idea is that God's just going to let them go through it. And so God, the discipline arrives in verses 17 and 18, where we read, then the people of Ammon mustered the troops and set up a camp in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and camped at Mizpah. And the people, that is the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. What is happening here is they're, they're going out there saying, Okay, who wants to lead us? Who wants to step forward and be the general and the leader of our people to defeat, um, to defeat the Ammonites? Guess how many came forward? None. So now there is a break in the action and a break in the story. And one of the interesting things is in verse uh, 18, they ask this question. Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? And so that's the question. Who is this man? And who is the man that of Jephthah? Who is he? What do we know about him? What qualifies him to leave? What is his character like? And in many ways, he's like both Gideon who preceded him and Samson who comes after him in that he doesn't show a whole lot of knowledge of the Torah he doesn't understand a whole lot about uh, his relationship with God, but he's a believer just like they are. That's a, another sign of uh, of God's grace is that these men are used by God to deliver the people. God praises them for their faith and lists them in Hebrews 11, 
But when you read what they did and their failures and how they are still so conformed to the world in their thinking that they they aren't they haven't had much learning of God's word to, as it's known to that point. So we ask these questions: Who's this guy Jephthah? What do we know about him? What qualifies him to lead? What's his character? And that's how we start with chapter eleven. And chapter eleven starts with a uh, vav consecutive or uh, vav disjunctive. The vav is the Hebrew and. And usually a sentence in Hebrew narrative begins with the and connected to a verb. But when it begins with the and connected to a noun, it's showing a disjunction. It's like you, like you watch TV and you're, it's showing one scene in one country here and all of a sudden it shifts to another scene in another country over here. And if you, we're looking at something else or got distracted, all of a sudden you don't know what's going on. Uh, that's the shift that's taken place here. Now we're going to be introduced to the one who they will bring in as a leader. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a prostitute, a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. So this is the opening verse. The first thing that is emphasized here is that Jephthah is a mighty, uh, a mighty man. He is a, uh, a, a warrior. His name, Yipta, in the Hebrew, is a shortened form that means that he, which assuming is the deity, he has opened. But it's ambiguous. Is it Yahweh who has opened? Is it Baal who has opened? Is it El who has opened? Who's the deity? We don't know. Uh, so in a, in the, um, in the cultural context where, uh, fertility and having many children is, uh, very important and very significant, uh, the name reflects uh, a gratitude on the part of his mother that she she would be his her first child and that God has opened her womb. But is she saying it's God, Yahweh, God Baal, or God El? We don't know. It, it's left for us to discern. But what that tells us is that he doesn't have a name where a suffix or prefix connects him to Yahweh. We don't know anything about his mother. Is she a Canaanite? Is she an Israelite? Is she uh, a descendant of the Ammon, uh, or the Amorites that had once lived in that area? Or what, who is she? We don't know. So we don't know whether she is brought, whether Jephthah is brought up with any influence from the Torah. We don't know if he's brought up with any influence from Baalism, but that's present in the culture. So we're, we're left wondering what's, what's his, uh, background? What is, what is the primary worldview? And what we've seen from the structure of, of judges is that these judges are consistently being influenced by the world around them. So he is called a Gileadite because he lives in this area of Gilead. 
but he is also a dis, the the son of a man named Gilead, not the Gilead for whom the territory was named, but for probably one of his descendants. So he is, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. He is called then a mighty man. Now this is another interesting term. It is uh, the term uh, Gabor Hayil. And the term Gabor Hayil is a term for a strong warrior, a strong man. Gabor is usually mighty man. In modern Hebrew, you go to the restrooms and you, you go to the room that's, if you're a guy, you go to the room that says Gabor. So it just basically means a man. Um, but it, in, in those days, it referred to either someone who's a strong or mighty warrior or they're an aristocrat or a wealthy person. Well, Jephthah's not a wealthy person or an aristocrat. He is the bastard son of a prostitute. They don't, you don't get any further down the social ladder than, than Jephthah. He is a, he is a nobody. Everybody would look down upon him. He has no social status whatsoever. But the fact that the first thing that's mentioned about him is that he is a mighty warrior, which is your only other option for the meeting, is foreshadowing that that's what he is. He is one tough guy because what we're going to learn about him is when he is kicked out of his home and his town, home, hometown, uh, by his stepbrothers because his father has a wife and many other sons. They don't want to share the inheritance with him, so they kick him out, and he has to go fend for himself out in the desert. But So he joins a gang, or today we might call it a cartel. You know the kind of people that are in gangs and cartels. They are tough. They're mean. There is a lot of fighting and struggle. Who's going to be the leader? And the leader ends up being Jephthah. So this guy is one tough dude. And he's not, you know, some nice spiritual leader. He is a tough warrior, and he has fought hard uh, to get into that kind of a position. Uh, the text says that he is a son of a prostitute. And this is a, an important thing because it locates him in terms of his economics and his social status uh, in in. Israel, under the law, God has instituted laws that are strictly monogamous, that you have one spouse and you're faithful to that spouse, and any sexual relations outside of the bond of marriage are prohibited and punishable by death. So God is serious about that. Often women would be driven to a life of prostitution if they were a widow or if they did not have a husband or they were orphans and they were, did it out of the need uh, for survival. Uh, no one was to treat a woman like a prostitute because that was extremely demeaning. So we don't know anything more than her, but that tells us a lot that he would have just been uh, at the lowest rung uh, of, of society. But his father is a well-known leader, Gilead. 
And in verse 2, we're told Gilead's wife bore other sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, it kind of reminds us of Abimelech, who is a son of, of Gideon's concubine. He's driven out, and they do it for money. You're not gonna, we're not gonna share the inheritance with you. In Israel culture, the, the inheritance goes through the father, not through the mother. So they know that Gilead is his father, but they don't want to share the inheritance with him, so they get rid of him. And in verse three, we're told he fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tov. We really don't know where that was. The term's used a couple of times. It's somewhere, it seems, east of of Gilead up what today it would be going over into the area of Iraq and he joins up with a band of worthless men and they he goes out raiding with them so they are robbers and bandits and they were terrorizing villages and things of that nature so these are not lily white nice little guys they are tough, they're mean, they're nasty, they're stealing from people, and he becomes their their leader. So that's the summary of Jephthah. And then in verse 4 we read, And it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So this is going to take us back to the end of chapter, uh, chapter uh, 10. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They, they've been seeking a volunteer. They can't find anybody. And everybody says the meanest guy around, the toughest guy around, and he shows by what he does that he understands military tactics and he understands what he is doing is, is Jephthah. So let's go get him. And so they do, and they say to Jephthah, and they begin these negotiations, come and be our commander, our leader, uh, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Notice, God doesn't raise him up. God is conspicuously absent from this story. And in verse 7, he starts negotiating with them. He shows he's a tough and wily negotiator. He's a realist. He says, don't you hate me? You guys ran me out of town. Uh, why have you come to me now when you're in distress, when you're in a tight spot, when you are, this word is often used in the, um, in the Psalms for being in a place of distress, a place of trouble. And so the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we've turned again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon. Well, let's bygones be bygones. We know what you can do, and we're going to ask you, we're going to pay you well, come back, and uh, we need to defeat the Ammonites. And so in verse 9, Jephthah says to them, well, okay, let's, let's make a deal here. If you take me back to fight against the people of the Ammon, and this is the first time we have Yahweh mentioned, and Yahweh delivers them to me, so he knows something. Somewhere along the line, he's learned a little bit. And he's using the covenant name of God. And so he says, and if Yahweh delivers them to me, shall I be your leader? So he's negotiating. He says, I'll be, I'll be in charge of all of you and you will bow down to me if I get the, God gives me the victory. So they agree to him. They, they have no choice. The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. 
Then verse 11, Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So we'll stop there, and next time we'll get into uh, what takes place after this. But we, we have to understand who Jephthah is. He's tough. He's mean. He has fought his way to the top. He is not somebody who people are going to to like. He's probably pretty dirty, um, but he's not the person that they normally would want to be in charge. He doesn't fit that profile of a nice leader. Yet, even though God doesn't raise him up, what we'll see is God does have the Spirit of God come upon him or clothe himself with Jephthah in order to give him the victory. So sometimes God uses leaders that don't fit the profile of 1 Timothy 3. They don't fit the profile of other passages that talk about uh, the king in Deuteronomy. But God picks the person who is going to get the job done. And their personality and other factors are not an issue. And that's what God chooses. So we can't avoid the fact that God is more than just his permissive will because he has the Holy Spirit descend upon Jephthah. So God's choice of leaders sometimes isn't the nice guy, that we nice little Christian leader that we think should be the, the leader. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, and we pray that you'd help us to understand them and to... Uh, understand your grace above all things throughout all these stories that we are in some ways, maybe not to the same degree, but we are rebels. We have our own desires that we follow. And yet in your grace, you forgive us again and again. And as members of the royal family, as members of the body of Christ, uh, you deal with us in exceptional grace. And for that, we're thankful. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.